Otherwise, if everyone would like to open their Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. And before we get started, I just want to, um, there's a prayer request for uh, Brother Brian Williams, for a, a co-worker of his, um, struggling with coronavirus. So let's pray for him, and then anyone else you know who is sick at this moment, let's, let's cover them in prayer. Lord, I pray right now that you would speak to this need, O oh God. You are still the great physician, O oh God. You are still in control of all things. You know all things, Lord. You see the many people who have been affected, not just by coronavirus, but the other illnesses that are around this season, O oh God. I pray that you would be with them, Lord, and bring healing to their bodies, O oh God. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Just for a few minutes, I want to talk to you on the topic of in the beginning. In the beginning. You may be seated. Now, as we start this lesson, I kind of want to I want to point something out to you that I personally found kind of interesting as I was studying and preparing. And um, this whole first section of my message was not originally what I intended on talking about. I had some other thoughts that will come up later, but but as I was studying, this kind of came out and, and God kind of put it on my spirit that I needed to talk about this. You know, when we read the Bible, we have to re recognize that um, specifically in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language is different than the English language. And I don't just mean in the words that we use, but in the very grammar and the syntax and the way that the language itself is set up. In English, we have a lot of um, modifiers that we use on words. So an adverb is a word that's modifying or describing a verb or an adjective. We use different words like that. And in the Hebrew language, they didn't really have those type of modifiers. Instead, they would use words in conjunction with one another that were meant to show a continuation. And I'm, I'm trying not to be overly technical and get into all the exact grammatical words here because I just want to get to the, to the point of it. The point I want to get to is this word and in verse 2. The word and. You see, the way that it would be better translated or to understand what, what a, a Hebrew reader would read this word as in the original language would be better translated as this. Now as for. Or you could say, as for. So I'm going to reread those first verses and I'm going to change that to that. So listen to what it says. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now as for the earth, it was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. When I first read this to my wife, she's like, I don't see the difference. Well, what's the difference in what you just said? The reason I bring this particular part out is because there are some people especially within the atheistic community that try to say, well, look, even your Bible allows for evolution because between when God created the heaven and the earth in verse 1 could have been millions of years and something happened to make the earth go dark and, and void and without form. So then you get to verse 2 where it's describing this future state. But when you read it the way that a Hebrew would read it, that's not what was meant. They were saying, God created it. And now, as for the earth specifically, it was dark, without void, in form. And actually, as you read through Scripture, you find a common theme of what happens. Where sometimes God will give us a big picture story, as in verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. And then he will zoom in on one specific part 
and give us more detail because there's something important happening that we need to understand as the reader. So then it stands to reason what was so important that we need to understand that he zoomed in to say that the earth was void and, and dark and without form. Well, we find the answer in the very next verse. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Now, as you read through the rest of this first chapter, we see the light being described as good over and over again. Why? What is so significant about this light that was in the beginning? That This light that divides good from evil. What's so important about it? Well, let's look at John chapter 8 and verse 12. It says this, Then spake Jesus again, saying unto them, or again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Furthermore, in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Listen to verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Do you see a theme here? Do you see a pattern? You see, from the very beginning of creation, God has shown us a distinction between his perfection and darkness. These verses have shown us that the light is the very source of life itself, meaning that God has illustrated that only in his presence are we ever truly alive. Because what is darkness except for the absence of light? And thus death, the absence of life, or God's spirit or his presence. This is further proven by the fact that Jesus says that we are the light of the world. Meaning those of us who have his spirit carry the light that was in the beginning, dividing the darkness. I want you to really understand what I'm saying here. That from the beginning, God's perfection was light. It was illuminating that which was good and that which was evil. We saw that Jesus said that he is that light. That light that brings life to the world. But he further says that we have that life if we are followers of his. So when we talk about having the Holy Ghost, when we talk about having the Spirit of God, we are talking about the same thing. This very light that was in the beginning dividing darkness. The, the reason we have the Spirit of God is not just for joy, not just for peace. It is for those things, but it is also because we are to be a light that is dividing the darkness of this world and illuminating what is right and what is wrong. God uses that because if I, of course, if I were to turn all the lights off in this, this room, in this auditorium, if I turned every light off and I just lit a match, just a tiny little match, the whole room could see the light of that match. It would stand out from the entire rest of the room. So it is when we have the light of God within us that we stand as a beacon to a lost and hurting world. Now, what I find also amazing is this. Within the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, we find 
all of the primary themes that will flow throughout the rest of Scripture. Within the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, we will find the major themes that will be repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of Scripture, all the way up to the book of Revelation. What I want to do is I want to kind of break down these, these few themes, and then we're going to wrap up tonight's lesson with a video. A little different, but I think this video is going to really bring all the points that I'm going to make here, bring it all together. So when we say in the beginning, we could very easily just say in the beginning Jesus, because that's what John 1 and 1 tells us, right? Because at the end of the day, it is ultimately all about Jesus. But I do want to point something out to you. This term, in the beginning, is not a reference to God. Because God has no beginning. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He always was and always will be. So in the beginning cannot be a reference to God himself. Yet in the beginning is a reference to the creation story. It is a reference to man's story. And this ties in to the very first theme that I want to talk about, which is family or relationship. You see, God begins this great work by setting up all of creation and then creating man so that he could have relationship with him. God created man as an extension of himself. We were created to be a part of God's family. And family here goes way beyond flesh and blood. True family, while we do see themes of family as being biological families that we care for and those things, God's family is not divided by blood, but by spirit. We see this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 48. Listen to what Jesus says. But he answered and said unto him and told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my mother, or my brother, my sister, and mother. Family was always designed to be us connected to God. That's what made us family. Not just our relation to one another, but our relation to God. And therefore, when we are connected to God, we are one family. We often, in church, we call each other brother and sister. But I don't think we fully understand the concept of, of what we are doing is saying that we identify as being family with God. And when you think about that, that, those ties should run even stronger than your ties with your biological family who are in church. I'm not saying treat them badly. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that we look to the temporal often, but neglect sometimes the eternal and God's family is eternal. But you see, sin caused a division in the family. But God, from the beginning, laid out how we repair that division. And I'm going to tell you, tell you this in the story of two brothers. Genesis chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, speaking of Cain here. I'm not going to rehash the whole story of Cain and Abel. I think we mostly know that at this point. But in verse 14 it says this, Behold, Thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Here's what's amazing about the story of Cain. And if you've been listening to the, the, the little podcast that's embedded on our, our reading plan, you will have heard this, but I think it's worth repeating. When Cain messed up originally, and he didn't offer the, the good offering, if you will, God didn't punish him for that. That was not his sin. That was not his big mistake. His mistake came when he became jealous of his brother and became angry with his brother. And God offered him a chance first by saying, don't you know if you do good, then good, it will be accepted. It's only when you don't do good that, that it becomes a problem. And obviously I'm paraphrasing here. But then in his anger and wanting to justify his own actions, much like his parents did, he decided to try to fix it himself. So what does he do? He goes and he kills his brother. No brother, no competition. Then God comes to him and says, you know, where's your brother? And in the silliness of Cain, which, which this is what sin causes us to do, Cain lied to God as though God didn't already know the answer. As though God didn't already know what took place. But God, yet again in his mercy, was giving Cain an opportunity to be honest. To be truthful from the first, from the, the get-go. But you see, God did the same thing for Adam and Eve. And again, sin caused them to lie and try to hide their mistakes instead of being honest with God. So because of this, he was cast out from the presence of God. Now we get to Genesis chapter 5. And we see that God replaced Abel, who had, who had died, with Seth. And Seth was one who worshipped God. And there's, you have to kind of read through the scriptures to really understand this. But for right now, take my word for it. Seth is someone who worshipped God. And, and, and it will kind of be proven right here in this, in this passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam. Which, by the way, the word Adam comes, it means Adam, which actually means human. It's where we get the word human from. Adam, the first human. In the day that they were created, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, and after his image, and called his name Seth. Here in chapter 5, we get the lineage of God's family. And notice who is missing. Cain. Seth is mentioned. Cain is not mentioned. Even though Cain had previously been mentioned. Because sin caused Cain to be separated from God's presence. Unrepented sin will cause you and me to be separated from God's presence and thus separated from the family of God. See, while Cain was cut out of the lineage, Seth was front and center. His choice to worship God would give birth to Enoch, who walked with God so closely that he was called up to heaven. But just as important, if not more important, Seth's lineage would also bring about Noah. And we will discuss this a little more in just a moment. So God created man for family and relationship. And as you read through the rest of scripture, you will notice the theme of family mentioned over and over and over again. Jesus talks about this and talks about the spiritual family. Family and relationship specifically is a very characteristic of God himself. He is a God of relationship. 
The second theme that innervates throughout all of Scripture that's found in the first several chapters is moral absolutism. There are those who make the argument that man did not truly have free will because he was told he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But actually, he had absolute free will because even though God told him not to, he was still able to do it. He still had the choice to do it. But you see, with free will also comes consequence. Free will is not about you do whatever you want and nothing ever bad happens to you. Free will is you get to make the choice independent of, of my force. But that doesn't mean there's not a consequence for the choice that you make. This is something that we as parents, for those of us who have kids, constantly try to, to put into our children's mind to help them understand that you, your choice will always produce a consequence. And if you lie about what you did, the consequence gets worse. But that's nothing new. Look back to Adam and Eve. They made a choice that had a consequence. But what made the consequence worse? The fact that they tried to lie and cover it up. See, he had free will. But God is a God of moral absolutes, meaning that God is perfect. We, unfortunately, no longer are perfect. We have sinned. God is perfect. From the very beginning, God drew a division between good and evil, light and dark. Remember my opening, talking about the light of God that created everything, that separated the darkness. While this world continually tries to, to blur the lines of morality, God has eternally defined that which is good and that which is evil. We must be careful to never allow our emotions or this world to cloud our knowledge of right and wrong, to cloud what God has said is evil. You see, this is a theme that's throughout all of Scripture. How many times do we see the children of Israel trying to justify their actions? How many times even King Saul immediately tried to justify disobeying what the prophet had told him? David, throughout all of Scripture, we see all of these people constantly trying to, to justify what they failed to realize is that God's word is absolute. Our attempts to cover up and justify always lead to something worse. But despite this, the third theme that innervates through all of Scripture is great. Because it is grace and mercy. God is a moral absolutist. God has set what is right and what is wrong, and it doesn't change. But from the very beginning, God is also a God full of grace and full of mercy. Adam and Eve attempted to cover their sins with lies and leaves. But God saw through both, and sin cannot abide in God's presence. So by every right, God could have struck them dead instantly. But instead, God through his mercy made a garment of an animal skin. A garment that came from sacrifice. And as we will see in a moment, this was not only immediate grace to cover their sins, but was a prophetic announcement of what God's plan was to be. We also see this grace on an even grander scale in chapter 6. Man's wickedness grew worse and worse to the point that God had repented even making man. And God had planned to destroy all of mankind. But in his mercy, he tells Noah to prepare an ark. 
Now, something that we often don't remember is that the ark was not only open to Noah's family. The ark was open to anyone. And Noah, I have to believe, preached the word constantly to the people. But the word fell on deaf ears over and over and over again, and they called him crazy. There's never been a flood. There's never been a rapture either. But it's going to happen. And all we can do is preach the word. The ark was open to all. Despite man's sin, God still desired a relationship with man. So God used the wood of the ark to carry man as the flood waters washed away the sin. Then after 40 days and night, God used a dove to signify the start of a new life. Okay, I want you to listen to this. God used the wood to build an ark that would transport them through the waters, that would wash away the sins of the world. And then after 40 days and 40 nights, the dove would show them where they were to start their new life. And then not all that much later, we find Moses standing at the sea with the sin, because you see, Egypt is sin. They were in Egypt because Jacob's brothers, or not Jacob's brothers, Joseph's brothers, sold him into slavery. And God used that to position him to save the nation. But here they stood with sin at their back, coming to crush them. They had to account for all of the mistakes they made, and yet, what does Moses do? Raises a wooden staff, parts the waters that would wash away the enemy, the sin behind them. And then after they walk through the waters, what happens? A pillar of fire leads them to the promised land. I want to point all of that out because that leads us to the final theme that innervates throughout all of Scripture. And that is redemption. You see, Jesus would hang on a wooden cross so that our sins could be washed away in the waters of baptism. So that when, just like the dove descended on Jesus, we can be filled with the Holy Ghost, the fire of the Holy Ghost, and live within us so that we may have a new life. Isn't it amazing the care, the meticulous care that God takes to show us, look, I made an ark to deliver you from sin. Then I made a second ark that housed my very presence to be with you. And then yet again, I made a third ark. See, Jesus was the ark. If you look at what Jesus was, his flesh was the veil that hid the presence of God. Because God's presence could not dwell in the sinful nature of man. Thus, when Jesus died, the veil was symbolically rent. Three times God used an ark to bring his people to salvation. Three times God used wood to bring people to a place of remission through water. And three times God used his spirit to bring new life to mankind. And this is truly the tip of the icebergs of all the parallels that can be made of how God is so consistent throughout history, throughout all of scripture, constantly calling his people back into relationship with himself. You see, from the moment that God created the light, it was with the intention of bringing forth life from the darkness. From the moment that man sinned, God gave a promise for redemption. Genesis 3.15 tells us that from the woman would come a seed, but that seed would crush the serpent and in turn would also be killed itself. Prophetically speaking of Jesus. 
as we read through all of the stories of the Israelites failing God over and over and over, we wonder, why does God continue to put up with this mess? But you see, it's just who God is. God is a God of relationship. He is the author of right and wrong, but he is also the very source of grace, mercy, and redemption. And he does all of this because he wanted relationship in the beginning. And he still wants it today. This is the beauty of an unchanging God. That his love for man is so great that it continues to show mercy on our sin time after time. Now, as the writer in the New Testament said, this is not a license to, to sin, God forbid. But it is room for us to continually grow, to continually work. Because just like the Israelites failed time after time, we can all say the same about us. The time after time, there have been areas in our lives where we've come short. And we wonder, how can God be so gracious? How can God be so merciful and loving toward me throughout all my mistakes? And what I want you to know is it's not about you, but it's just who God is. And nothing you can do can change the nature of God. See, He is everlasting. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Despite the continued wickedness of this world, He is a God of mercy and grace. He is also the God of right and wrong, but he is a God of redemption as well. I want to watch this short video, and then I'm going to bring all of this to a close. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. By him, through him, and to him, in the beginning, all things emerged. In the beginning, he built the physical world into which he would eventually come. In the beginning, he formed the flesh he would eventually become. He designed the air in the beginning on which his lungs would eventually rely. In the beginning, he constructed the tree on which he would hang and eventually die. For when God spoke and the universe sprung to life, in the beginning, he made a promise to save the world by becoming Jesus the Christ. And we know this because it is right in the beginning of our Bibles in the first story we face. For the book of Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. In the beginning, we see the meaning of why God created the earth and everything in it. It's that we might enjoy his presence, expand his garden, and cover the world as his image. So to that end, 
God gave human beings the privilege of being a part of that mission. He enlisted Adam and Eve to care for the earth and to have children, to be fruitful and multiply until everyone that would come from their family line turned the whole earth into a garden temple where humans could live side by side with the divine. But for Adam and Eve, something else came to mind. Instead of enjoying God and his provision, they sought out a counterfeit. Instead of expanding the garden, they sought to conquer it. Instead of spreading the image of God, they sought out their own prominence. God gave them the reason for their existence, and they did the exact opposite. All they were left with was shame, where they used to be free, guilt, where there used to be peace, and fear, where there used to be ease. So instead of being with God in his garden temple, they would be removed from him. For they sought out life apart from the one who gave them breath. They thought they were gaining something by their deeds, but all they earned was death. Death for their bodies, loss of their purpose, the end of their paradise, the destruction of their innocence. But the worst part of all of it, the punishment's deepest depth, is that they would be cut off from the author of life. That is the worst possible death. But God's plan was not altered or disrupted. His purposes were not laid to rest. Instead, he would work through the worst humans could do to show us his best. For what we see after Adam and Eve commit the first sin at the garden tree is that God makes them a guarantee that he would set humanity free from the curse of death that would divide us. From Adam and Eve's offspring, he would provide us with a new seed, a new Adam, one who was righteous, who would unmake death, remake his world, and reconcile us. Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. This promise of a new seed was made to a specific people of a specific line, which Genesis goes to great lengths to trace and define. But in Eve's first seed, we do not find life, but death. We don't see a son crushing sin, but dying under it. So even though Eve had given birth to new offspring, God's promise of his final seed would not be fulfilled yet. Instead, God would give them another son named Seth, who would be the next in line to bear the promise. But just like Adam and Eve, and 
just like Cain and Abel, God's promised seed would be carried by imperfect people, people who continually commit evil. Noah escaped the flood, but committed shameful acts while intoxicated. Sarah was promised a chosen child, but gave Abraham to another when her doubts were escalated. Isaac was told to bless his younger son, but tried to make it so the older was the one consecrated. Jacob was given God's blessing, but constantly tricked, lied, and manipulated. And by the time we get to Joseph, at the end of Genesis, Adam and Eve's family tree is filled with so much brokenness, so much death, so much hopelessness, that we start to wonder if anyone will fulfill God's promises, if anyone will be the promised seed, or if there would ever be someone who could. But Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. Which is why the book of Genesis points to a future descendant, one who would keep the promise, one who would take all that was wrong and make it right. For the very word who in the beginning spoke and there was light was born as the promised seed of Genesis, as Jesus the Christ. He would bring the whole world life, but not like Adam and Eve who tried to earn life by taking something off a tree. Instead, he would put his own life on one to take the death that humanity brought on. For in the beginning, when Jesus built the world, formed the flesh and constructed the very idea of trees, he was crafting the very piece of wood on which he would suffer loss. In the beginning, Jesus promised to conquer death by putting himself on a cross. But what's different about his death than the death earned in the Garden of Eden is that when Jesus died, death could not keep him. Since he did not sin like Adam, the grave had no claim and therefore had to release him. So now all nations can escape the curse, beat death, and be back with God in Eden. So just as in Genesis, the cross of Jesus demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because 
he made a gracious promise that he would. Thank you so much for watching our introduction to the book of Genesis. What an amazing story of redemption. What I would like for us as a church to be able to get this month when reading through the book of Genesis, it's not just a story of failures, not just a story of genealogies and mistakes, but a story of redemption. A story of God's love that worked time after time after time through all the failures of man. As we read through these stories, I want you to look at it toward your own life about how all those moments in your life where you thought your failures were leading you to destruction, God was molding them and crafting them to bring you into redemption. Let's all stand. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you that you are the word, that you are the living word. That from the very beginning, you were bringing life into a world that would only betray you. That you were bringing grace and mercy to a world that would despitefully use you. That you were bringing redemption to a world that would refuse you. I pray, O oh God, that we would look to your word as an amazing love story of redemption, of grace, and of mercy, O oh God. That we would recognize that as Peter said, where can I go, O God, for you only have the words to eternal life. I pray, Lord, let this not just be uh, something we do daily where we just read the word to check off on our little app that we finished it, O God. But that we would take a true account. Are we doing what we need to do and are we part of the family of God? And are, are we living up to the characteristics that you have exhibited from the beginning? Are we being gracious? Are we being merciful? Are we pointing others to the redemptive, redemptive power that is you? I thank you. I give you glory and honor for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.